Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, please. Revelation chapter 3. And join me in reading the uh, first six verses of Revelation chapter 3. The Apostle John records for us what the Lord Jesus uh, has said to the church at Sardis here, and this is what we read. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we have done in the past, we're going to look up the front for an introduction, give us a quick understanding of the church at Sardis. And uh, as you know, we are studying the letters to the seven churches. Uh, we have already taken care of Ephesus in previous discussions, uh, and Smyrna, and Pergamum, and Thyatira last week. Today we will take care of Sardis uh, and then in the time to come, probably in November after our month of Reformation in October, we will look at Philadelphia and Laodicea yet to come. And for those who may not have seen already, we have the Apostle John banished to the Isle of Patmos and this is where he receives the revelation uh, and writes to this church at Sardis on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the recipients First of all, we note, as we have in all the other letters, that it is to the angel, the church in Sardis. We've already discussed the fact that this refers to the leadership of the church there at Sardis. Uh, interestingly, this particular assembly is only mentioned here by name in the book of Revelation, and there is no indication whatsoever in the scripture how it came to exist. We don't know whether it was the, uh, the work of the apostle Paul or others uh, or others sent from other churches that began this, we have no information whatsoever, as I can see in the scriptures, regarding Sardis. But the city of Sardis, we have some very interesting information about that. Sardis was an important city in the Roman province of Asia. Once the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, it was a cultural, religious and commercial centre. This is the first time we've seen all three. We've had religious, we've had commercial, but now we have cultural, religious and commercial. Important city. And the site of Sardis lay 1,500 feet above the plain and assumed a position of great importance. With the Hermas Valley to the north and a series of steep spurs which jutted out into the plain, the city was virtually impregnable. And you can see in the picture over there, that is what is on three sides of that city. Very, very hard to conquer 
You only have one entrance. In fact, in doing some research on it, I found out the only way they had conquered this city on two occasions was by a literal, by a rock climber. Had literally gone up the side of there and had gone into the walls and been able to uh, open up the gates and so forth. So uh, incredible. Unlike... There we go. Unlike Thyatira, this city had a great Acropolis, which became a place of refuge in time of war. So that was that place of defence and refuge. So when the the city came under attack, they all went to the Acropolis and there they were safe. Uh, And this, as you can imagine, with those kind of walls around it uh, and that kind of a uh, cliff face, it was a very, very sturdy place to be. And Sardis was synonymous with wealth. This was largely due to the gold that was discovered in the Pactolus, a stream which flowed through the city. Uh, So they came across that uh, well and truly before the Lord Jesus' time, uh, and uh, it was a very, very wealthy place to be. The city of Sardis was famous for being the first recorded city in the world to mint gold and silver coins, Okay, as far as history goes. Uh, Sardis came under Roman control in 133 BC, so a long time before the Lord Jesus. But in AD 70, it underwent a catastrophic earthquake, but it was rebuilt fully with the generous financial aid of the Emperor Tiberius. And in gratitude, the inhabitants of Sardis erected a temple in Tiberius's honour, which was common in those days when an emperor would give Extensive archaeological excavations have taken place in Sardis with some fascinating findings. So first of all, we have the gymnasium bathhouse, a very large complex built in the centre of the lower city in the second century AD and included a gymnasium and a bathhouse. The complex was over five acres in size and its western part was characterised by large vaulted halls for bathing. The eastern part was a palestra, a large open courtyard for exercise. And this was largely intact. So uh, one, of the, one of the best findings uh, in the area. As well as that, interesting, I think, that uh, they found a synagogue and it was notable for its size and location one of the largest ancient synagogues excavated. Its location is found in the centre of the urban city instead of in the periphery as synagogues typically were. This attests to the strength and wealth of the Jewish community in the city. And the synagogue came into use in the 3rd century AD. A lot of people believe that in the diaspora, the uh, dispersion of the Jews, a great number of Jews fled to Sardis and there erected a um, synagogue almost in the centre of the city. Very, very populated by the Jewish faith. And then we have the Temple of Artemis for the second time. We've seen one at Ephesus, that incredible uh, building. But here we have another one. Artemis, or Cybele, was the main goddess of the city. And the temple dedicated to her in Sardis is one of the seven largest Greek temples. Artemis, known as Diana by the Romans, was the daughter of Zeus and twin of Apollo. She was the goddess of the hunt, the moon, and fertility. And then lastly, the city of Sardis has hot springs not far from its centre, which were celebrated as a spot in which the gods manifested their supposed power to give life to the dead. And it's ironic 
because it was a city which contained a church that is called dead. In the Apostle Paul, uh, Apostle John's day, I should say, Sardis was prosperous but declining. Its glory days were past and both the city and the church had lost their vitality. And so this morning we look at Sardis, the dead church. Let's pray. Father, as we commence a study into your word here, we pray for help and guidance, for power and for strength. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take uh, feeble words from a feeble man and use them mightily in the lives of your people. Uh, Change us, uh, conform us to the image of Christ, uh, alert us of the dangers found here in this passage that relate to this particular church, but uh, in a generalized sense can be uh, relational to every church if we're not careful. Help us to learn much from this church at Sardis, the good and the bad. Uh, We look forward to seeing what you will do in and through the text that we look at today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. As I have done for each of the churches, the first point to look at is the designation of Christ. Every time we begin a letter, he gives us some insight into who the author is, and this being the Lord Jesus. Here, in this particular passage and this letter, he describes himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Very unusual designation, if you know anything about the Bible. Um, And it has left many a commentator scratching their head. In fact, this week I pulled out uh, nearly all, and I was surprised at how many commentaries I have on the book of Revelation. There was a lot of them. And my desk was filled to the brim with these commentaries, just trying to get an indication of what different people think about this. And let me tell you, there were many of a different opinion. Many. I always think it's interesting that the passages that are hardest to interpret, all the commentators don't give you any comment on it, uh, which doesn't help you one little bit. But here we have the Lord Jesus referring to himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God. Now, interestingly enough, we read the exact same phrase in chapter 1 and verse 4, where John says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Also, we find that the seven spirits occurs a number of other places in the book of Revelation. But the prevailing thought and the one that I would... uh, Uphold, although I'm not going to say that I know for certain, but I believe that what these seven spirits of God refer to are seven angels who are elsewhere referred to as seven torches of fire in chapter 4 and verse 5, and the seven spirits of God that are sent out into all the earth in chapter 5 and verse 6. Now, lest I uh, be too dogmatic about this, other commentators believe that this simply refers to the Holy Spirit, and the number seven signifies his perfection. Uh, and his gifts and his graces. To me, I think that interpretation is a bit of a stretch, personally. But there are those who would say seven signifies perfection, therefore it must be the Holy Spirit in his perfection. Uh, I struggle with that one. And I think uh, perhaps there is a Jewish folklore, it's not written in the scripture, but it is held by Jews over the years, uh, that God has before him seven specific angels that are sent throughout the earth to do his bidding. 
Now, we know very little about angels, uh, and whether or not that's true, I'm not sure. But here I think it is dealing with seven specific angels. That's the hard one. The easy one is the seven stars, because the Bible's already told us the seven stars in chapter 1 and verse 20. These are the angels or the elders, pastors of the seven churches. So in understanding that, why did the Lord Jesus refer to himself as the one with the seven spirits of God and the seven stars? In every other letter, there's been a reason that he's given that designation. And what is it here? I would suggest to you that this is a title. These titles or designations are given to help us understand his rule and his authority over the church. He is both the Lord of the heavenly realm and he's the Lord of the church. He exercises his governing power by means of these seven angels that are before his throne and his governing power through the elders and pastors in the individual churches. I cannot tell you this morning why exactly the Lord Jesus has introduced himself this way, but I can say this, I believe it is because the church at Sardis needed to recognize and be confronted with the power and the authority and the supremacy and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And if nothing else, what I can say for us is that we need to do that too. It is essential that we are reminded again this morning That MCCBC is not simply a group of people who meet together each week for a time of sharing and singing and eating. We are Jesus' church, called out from the world to fulfill his bidding and to reflect his glory. We are not our own. We do not have our own rights. We are under the full weight of God's authority and we must yield ourselves before him. And the church at Sardis needed to know that. And the church at Mount Cathedral needs to know that. We are under the sovereignty and the supremacy and the authority of Jesus Christ. He is Lord of the church. And even as we come into Reformation Month next month, next week, we're going to be confronted with the fact that the church in the wider sense have quite often in history lost sight of the fact that Jesus is Lord of the church. The Pope is not Lord of the church. The pastor is not Lord of the church. The leadership is not Lord of the church. Jesus Christ and him alone is Lord of the church. And Colossians 1, 16 to 18, Lucas has been teaching through Colossians. And this is what we read. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Church, we must remember in this early introductory part of this passage, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and his lordship over his church. And if that's not enough, consider these words from the writer of Hebrews long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his minister a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church. Sardis needed to know it, and so do we. The designations of Christ. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God. And the seven stars. But let's look secondly here at the concerns of Christ. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Firstly, we must understand something here. In our other letters to the churches, especially at Ephesus, Pergamum and Thyatira, the Lord Jesus began by commending the church. In the past, I've said the commendations of Christ as our second point. Not here. Here, the Lord immediately brings to light his concern with this church. That might give us an indication of the seriousness of the problem here at Sardis. The Lord Jesus had very little to commend this church about. Look at what he says again, I know your works. You may get tired of hearing me say this. I say this every Sunday when we read one of these letters because the Lord Jesus keeps saying, I know your works. It must be something we need to learn. He knows us. He's aware of what's going on. Nothing escapes the omniscient eye of Jesus Christ. If it did, he could not be Lord of the church. And I believe as I was meditating upon this, that if for just one day, Just one solitary 24 hours of a day. If my mind could be channeled and all its powers marshaled to understand at every moment of that day that Jesus sees and knows absolutely everything about my mind and my heart and what I do, I believe I'd be changed forever. See, I remember it sometimes. I remember it throughout the day. But if I could just once... For a 24-hour period, understand the omniscience of Christ. I believe my Christian life would be changed forever. The more we come to appreciate and understand what he knows and sees, the more our behavior and our mind and our heart will change. And I believe that's what he wants us to learn. I know your works, Sardis, the Lord Jesus says. Look at what he says. You have the reputation of being alive But you are dead. This objective truth from the mouth of Christ is shocking. Shocking. In other words, Jesus says, you are considered to be alive, to be vibrant, to be full of energy and power. But in actuality, you are a rotting corpse. Wow. Imagine that letter. Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church, you look so good and you've got a reputation that precedes you from the world and from other churches. But in actual fact, I know and I see you and you're nothing more than a rotting corpse. So much for this uh, 
seeker sensitive Jesus is never concerned about anything in the church concept mentality that we see in churches today. In fact, this reminded me of another passage as I read through this again. In Matthew 23, 27, we won't turn there, but the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. All the externals look wonderful. Everything looks fantastic from the outside, but in actual fact, oh, hypocrites and scribes, he says, you're full of dead people's bones. You're decaying internally. Here we see before us in this text that a reputation with the world or even in religious circles is completely redundant. The only thing that matters is what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks of his church. As I survey church in the broad sense today, and as I read books, as I read magazines and blogs and articles right throughout the week, I find that churches are filled with ministries. Ministry is good. Filled with noise. Filled with commotion and performances. They are sleek and organized and interesting and community focused and entertaining and significant. But none of these ingredients alone form a living church. They look alive. They look busy. They look like there's commotion and activity going on. It's like a beehive. But the Lord Jesus Christ is not swayed by any of that. And the danger that we have in this ever-increasing entertainment culture is that we would look busy and look good and worry about a reputation, about what the world might think or what other assemblies might think, when in actual fact we forget what the Lord of the church thinks. And we're not concerned about what he thinks, we're concerned about what we think or what we want the church to be or what they say the church should be. God forbid that that would be the case for us, that we are concerned with a reputation Rather than what the Lord Jesus sees. But look in our text here, it says, You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In the scripture, one thing you can be sure of is wherever there is spiritual death, it is always connected with sin. Always. Spiritual death is always a result of sin. Like so many churches in our day, Sardis was defiled by the world and sin and seemingly populated by unsaved people who were simply playing church. In fact, John MacArthur, I think, put it incredibly well in this one sentence. He described Sardis as a church like one of those museums in which stuffed animals are exhibited in their natural habitats Everything appears to be normal, but nothing is alive. That's a great picture. That's exactly what's happening at Sardis here. They're all in their natural habitat. It all looks great, but everything's dead. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't say that the church at Sardis was guilty of laziness or a lack of service. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 2, it's clear that they have works, that they're doing things. But they were simply going through the motions of dead liturgy. 
and orthodoxy without being firmly attached to the life-giving vine, the danger that every one of us can fall into. God was not impressed by their service, by their works, or by their reputation. Church, this is incredibly important for a lesson for us to learn. If we're not careful, we'll believe the lie that buildings infrastructures, wealth, prosperity, ministries, accolades of the world and even other assemblies somehow in and of themselves bring glory to God. And yet we find in the scripture that God repudiates all that is tainted and soiled by sin. And Sardis was a zombie-filled, sin-stained, unrepentant assembly which if left unattended would be met with the fierce judgment of God, the Lord of the church. I'm not trying to make this heavier or harsher than what it is. This is exactly what Jesus is saying about one of his churches. You are dead. I wonder, I wonder often, I ponder this thought often. I don't pray as much as I ought to about it. I wonder how many dead people are mixed in with our assembly. Only God knows. I wonder how many quickened saints are living like they are dead. In our assembly. The truth is is that God will purge us. And it will hurt. Because the church is for the believer. And the believer is to be alive and vibrant in the cause of Jesus Christ. But here we see dead. And those who are alive living like they are dead. So let's see what the Lord has to say about this. Let's look thirdly at the commands of Christ. What does the Lord Jesus command this dead church? Well, look at what he says here in verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. In studying out this passage... I see here that there are three kinds of individuals in the church. Firstly, there are the dead. These represent the unregenerate, unsaved individuals. People who are not really part of the church but gather with the church. The unsaved people. The second group of people I see here are the sleepy. These represent the believers who are living like they are dead. They're alive, but they're asleep. The third I see here are the living Those, the remnant of those who are alive and awake and serving the Lord. We have the dead, the sleepy, and the awake, and the alive, and the vibrant. Now, in understanding this passage of Scripture, we need to understand a couple of things here. First of all, we need to know, or we know from many Scriptures in the New Testament, that only the Spirit of God can move upon the actual dead and bring them to life. Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead and it was the Spirit of God who awakened you from that death. Okay, so for the Lord Jesus to say to them, wake up, is not talking to the dead people. It can't be because they cannot wake up of themselves. We understand that? The theology that we teach, that we understand the scripture, is that the dead there need to be awoken by the Spirit of God in salvation uh, as uh, an understanding of the gospel and they become a Christian. So I don't believe that the commands here that Jesus is issuing relate to the dead group. 
I believe he's dealing with the sleepy. I believe he's dealing with those who are asleep, which is why he says, wake up, wake up. There are five clear commands given in this text to the sleeping Christians, to those who are alive but look like they're dead. First of all, look with me here at this very first phrase, wake up. The church was in serious trouble. There was no time for delay. The first and most important step was that they would be aroused from their indifference, their apathy and their dead-like state. This call includes the idea of being watchful, alert and vigilant. I believe that there are many, many, many believers who are in a dead-like state, who are sleeping on their watch. When they ought to be on the watchtower, when they ought to be fighting, when they ought to be serving, when they ought to be loving God with all of their heart and engaged in the battle in the fullness and and the fury of that fight against the, the armies of darkness, they are sleeping on the job. They are distracted. They are concerned with the affairs of this life and not the one to whom has called them into the army of God. And it is high time that Christians wake up and realize what's going on. Realize what's going on in the world. Realize what's going on in the scriptures. Realize that this is all about God. It's not about my own investments. It's not about my own goals and achievements. I am here for his glory. Wake up is the call and the clarion call that needs to be heard today in the church of Jesus Christ. So many are sleeping on the job. In the Roman army, if you fell asleep on the job, that was the last thing you did. Our God is so much more gracious. He allows us to sleep for a while, but don't be under any false understanding. If you sleep on the job, the Lord will come and wake you. Or he will take you away. He will end your life in this particular physical life because you are no longer upholding his glory. There is a sin under death. There is a reality of judgment that comes upon God's church and it must begin in the house of God, Jesus said. Wake up. Secondly, he says to this church that are sleeping on the job, he says, strengthen the residual, secondly. He says, strengthen what remains. In essence, he says, so many things were not as they ought to be, but yet there remained the graces and spiritual truths in the lives of those believers. See, they couldn't have always been sleeping because at one point the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God uh, awoken them to the truth of the gospel. They believed it and they became a Christian. But sometime later in their life, sometime down the path of their Christian experience, they had begun, began to get drowsy and fall asleep on it. And Jesus says to them, Strengthen what is there. It might not be much, but strengthen what's there. Let's bring it back to the surface. The graces that you learned and the gospel that you know, bring it back. Jesus calls them to fan into flame the dying embers of their spiritual life. And then he says, thirdly, remember the past truths. Here he says in our text, remember then what you received and heard. These sleeping, 
drowsy Christians had heard the truth. They knew the truth because it had awakened them initially to the gospel. And he says to them, go back to the basics. Church, go back to the basics. If you and I are those who are prone to be falling asleep in our Christian life and just putting everything in cruise control and going through the motions, go back to the truth. Come back to the foundations. The brokenness and the decay and the death and sin was characterizing this church. And so often it characterizes our own life. What did they need? They needed to return to the fundamental truths of the gospel. Repentance, forgiveness, holiness, sanctification. All the topics that they needed to recover and walk in. Fourthly, the Lord Jesus commands them to be obedient to the truth. In verse 3 he says, remember then what you have received and heard. And then he says, Keep it, obey it, do it. It's never enough to simply meditate on the truths of God's word, is it? It's not enough to just simply do that. It's not enough to just let it flow over us. We also have to then take the next step, which is to obey it. So we can have a head full of information and a head full of knowledge, but God then calls us to transfer that into a life of obedience. Theory is not enough. We must walk in the practicalities of this Christian life. And that's what Jesus says to this church. Remember the past truth, but then go and do it. Obey what you know is true. James said, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then the fifth thing that the Lord Jesus commands this church, finally in verse number three, is repentance. He simply says, keep it and repent. You know, the way back always requires repentance. Always. Spiritually dead people must repent. So too must sleepy Christians. Repentance is a change of heart which changes our behavior. I was going in this direction. I was thinking this way. Now I understand the truth. Now I'm willing to obey it. And I am turning around and going this way. And it's going to affect how I live, not just how I talk. It's going to change my life. True repentance will be seen when there is a change in the life. Not to conform to a set of standards, but because the Holy Spirit has in my heart and in my soul said, you need to change and I'm going to empower you to do so. It requires a change of heart that results in a change in behavior. And you know, the way to repentance, you say, well, how can I repent? How does repentance begin? Well, it always begins the same way, and that is through hearing the truth and obeying it. Always. The believers at Sardis needed to repent. Failure to obey these five commands would result in swift judgment. Jesus says here, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This is a threat. This is a threat of judgment. Uh, That really breaks up our understanding of the Lord Jesus and the church sometimes. We talk about the Lord Jesus' love for the church and that is so true. What we don't talk about is his judgment of the church. Here he says, if you're not going to do what I tell you to do, I am going to bring about chastening. I am going to bring about some things that are going to hurt. I'm going to come to you like a thief when you don't even know I'm coming. And I will come against you. The question to be asked is, is Jesus ever against his church? The answer is yes. Not ultimately, 
but temporarily in the life of the church in this world. The Lord Jesus can be against his church. And what a threat that is. It's a different thing to have the world against the church. It's a different thing to have a few people who are accusers of the brethren. It's a different thing to have the the devil against the church. But whoa, are we if Jesus should set himself up against the church because judgment needs to come. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying ultimately or eternally the Lord Jesus is against his church. We know that's not true. But temporarily and from a, a conditioned perspective of the church, the Lord Jesus will set himself up against the church and bring about judgment if we will not obey the commands given here. God will not bless or continue to uphold a church that is dead. And like a thief, he will come unannounced and unexpectedly to bring about judgment. That's severe, severe warning. It's so nice to preach messages on the attributes of God. It's so nice to preach on peace and joy and hope and love uh, and freedom and liberty in Christ and all those other wondrous topics. And sometimes when it comes to these kind of topics, internally I just want to run away from them because these are hard messages to preach about judgment against God's church. And uh, John the Baptist and these other guys in Scripture seem to do it sort of so easily. They They just preached it. But these are hard things for us to grapple with. But we need to take note of the severe warning in the text here for ourselves and for our church. But lest we make it all doom and gloom and we don't see what's on the other end of it, look with me fourthly at the promises of Christ. And this is so encouraging in verse number four. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amazingly, in God's grace and providence, there are still some at Sardis, not a lot from this text, but there are still some who have not soiled their garments. They have not stained or smeared or polluted their walk with God. Interestingly, this soiling of garments uh, had a special meaning to the church there at Sardis because this was particularly common in Sardis because of the city's wool dyeing industry. They were constantly soiling their garments to change the colours of them and to dye them. It's a big industry there in Sardis. And so they knew exactly what was meant. Uh, particularly here and they knew what Jesus meant when he said there are some who have not dyed their garments with the stains of sin there are some who have kept it clean and pure and the garments in scripture are a picture of character always a picture of character in Jude 23 the half-brother of the Lord Jesus says Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. There are some at Sardis, Jesus says, who are walking with me. There are some there who are, sure, they're sinners, but they are dealing with it on a daily basis and they are keeping their garments clean and pure. And for these, there are three Precious promises given here to these conquerors. Number one, he says, 
we have the promise of his presence and our purity. Look at what he says there in verse 4. In Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This is not just a promise to the church at Sardis. This is a promise to the church as a whole. Those who will keep their garments clean and continue walking as they ought to before him and therefore be conquerors will one day walk with him in the purest of garments. The promise here is of Christ's presence and our eternal purity. One day when this life is over and sin is gone and all the aspects of our flesh is finished, we will be with him personally. We will walk with him and we will have the garments of eternity which are pure and white and cannot be defiled. There is a day when sin is over. There is a day when the flesh and the battle with it is finished and we will walk with him. And this is the promise to the Christian who will conquer. You will be with me. You will be pure And he says this to the church here at Sardis. And then the second promise is the promise of our permanency as God's child. In verse 5 he says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The true child of God is the child of God for all eternity. That cannot change. Now, there's some question about who in this text truly is one of God's children. Those who are dead are clearly not his children and those that are alive are. And so here he says, there is a promise to you who are alive, who will walk as you ought to because you are Christians. I will never blot your name out of the book of life. Precious promise. The assurance of all eternity with Christ. And then thirdly, the promise of Christ's confession. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Meaning this, the Lord Jesus will say, that is mine. I bought him with my precious blood. He is your child. This is a precious, precious promise of Christ's confession. I will say on that day, he's mine. No judgment. No condemnation. These shall go off into eternal destruction, the Lord Jesus says and at the end of Revelation. These are not mine. These are the goats. These are the sheep. These are the ones I've separated between. But this one right here, I will confess before my Father, have no condemnation on this one because I have bought him with my precious blood. He is mine. What a confession. What a promise. What an incredible blessing. And so what do we learn Together this morning for us. Well, I think probably one of the greatest tragedies is seeking to have a reputation and yet being dead. Sardis was that. They were people focused, not Christ focused. They were resting on the laurels of the accolades of men and yet their garments were stained greatly with sin they fell miserably short of God's standard Jesus called them to wake up and to fulfill his mission sadly the church at Sardis had many who were not even believers in their midst 
And you know what? Dead people cannot glorify God. Do we understand that? Dead people cannot glorify God. Only those who have been illuminated, only those who have been quickened, made alive by the Spirit of God, by means of the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, only those can glorify God. And church, this morning for us, I'm gravely concerned. Sometimes I get sick thinking about it in my stomach that there could be, there might be, there probably is. Those in our midst, even today, who would meet together thinking or wanting or desiring to be a part of what is going on here, and yet they are dead in their sin. And for you, if that is you this morning and you sit there and in your own heart right now, you are aware of the fact that this is a reality. I'm here, but I'm not really here. Then the answer is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in him for salvation. Recognize that the deep and dark crevices of your heart are blackened all the way through. Sin has affected every part of your nature and you have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. Stop playing church. Oh, that we would have a harvest of souls in the church as a whole, in the general church, where people would say, I know I'm not this, but I'm playing it and I need to get right. Oh, that this warning would be heard. Oh, that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and help you to understand that there's no point playing church. Stop faking it because there's only one hope and it's Jesus Christ and Him alone. Nobody else can help you. And I believe that because of the the mediocrity of the church and the apathy of the church, we're not even looking out for one another when it comes to salvation and the souls in our midst. Are we connected, all of us, through the blood of Jesus Christ? Or are there some who are here And come week after week, sit in the same chair, listen to the preaching, say, yeah, that's good, that was great, encouraging. Go through the motions, but don't have Christ. God forbid. God forbid that I, as an elder and a pastor who give an account for your souls, would let you go through this service and not beg you to come to Christ. Beg you to understand this fact. But I realize on the flip side of that that it must be God who opens your heart. Perhaps there are dead ones in our midst. But I'm fairly sure of this, that I can say this with certainty because it's often my own heart situation. There are probably Christians who are asleep today. And I don't mean because they're preaching so long and boring. I mean spiritually. You're alive. You've been quickened. God has changed your life. And you can remember that time and place where you confessed your sin and you trusted in him. But somewhere along the lines, you lost sight of the glory of God and the gospel of God. And now you are living in a place of apathy and doing your own thing and just just going through life. And yes, you come to church and yes, you attend this. And maybe you give some money to the offering and maybe you do a few things here and you're trusting in your works as a Christian, but you're not alive truly. You're not living it out. It's not completely. Compelling you to live that Christian life with a, with a sense of vibrancy and zeal because you love him above all things. Some have lost that. I have lost that from time to time. We all lose it from time to time. And Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Oh, Christian, wake up. Wake up and see the joy and the glory of Jesus Christ again. I'm not talking about you know giving more. I'm not talking about coming to church more or being involved. I'm talking about seeing Christ again. 
being revived again about who he is and what he's done and returning to the gospel truth and letting them play out in your life so that your life is changed now, so that you're here with a purpose. You're not just going through these motions of Christianity, but it has an impact on your life. I'm not talking about signing up for more ministries. I'm talking about loving God with all your heart, coming back to that. Coming back to Christ, coming back to fairest Lord Jesus. Better than the meadows, better than the woodlands, better than anything else. He is the one. That's what I'm talking about. We need to wake up. But then also I note here by way of application is that there may be those here and I hope and I pray and I trust there are that are vibrant, that are excited, that are zealous, that are saying my heart is just thrilled to hear this again to remind me to continue being faithful, to continue washing my garments white, to not let the stains of sin of this world and the the thoughts of this life enter into my heart. I want to keep going and to you and what the Lord Jesus says, I say as well to you, keep on going, keep washing. Keep washing daily, repent and confess and agree with God about sin and keep walking in cleanliness. Keep walking in purity and holiness as you wait for the coming of the King of Kings who will give you your eternal white robe. Some may be unsaved, some may be asleep and I hope that many are vibrant and employed in the service of God. My prayer is that God would quicken the dead today, arouse the sleepers, And strengthen the faithful. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you, Lord, for this church at Sardis that represent uh, many of us, if we're honest. Uh, In here we see the dead, the asleep, the vibrant. Lord, may you transition and transform us from any that might be dead to being alive and from any that might be asleep to being vibrantly zealous for your cause and your glory and your kingdom. I don't know perhaps why you have so impressed upon my heart the need to yet again pray and remind these people about the importance of coming to know Christ as Saviour and perhaps maybe there are some here today, I don't know. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would open the heart to believe the gospel whether they be those who've been here for a long time, whether they're visitors, whether they're in between, whether they're passing through, I don't know. But I pray that you would cause there to be salvation in this house today. pray that you would cause there to be an awaking, an arousing, and a determination by those who are committed to continue being faithful, to love you with all their heart, that we would continue to take time to be holy, to walk in holiness, to cleanse our garments. And, O Lord, how we look forward, how we yearn for the day when we see you, where we're with you. These promises are fulfilled in the fullest sense, where we wear the white robes that can never again be stained or polluted by sin. We will be with you forever to hear you confess before the Father, He or she is mine. What a thought. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.